welcome everybody. This is Health or Consequences, a monthly health policy podcast on Massachusetts healthcare, uh, sponsored by Commonwealth Magazine and Mass Inc. I'm John McDonough from the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, and I'm your co-host, together with my colleague and friend, Paul Haddis. And our guest today is Mr. Kane Hayes. And we're delighted and excited to have him. He's the president and CEO of Point32 Health, which is a $9 billion health plan that includes Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan. They have 2.2 uh, million members in five states, and they're one of New England's largest nonprofit health and well being organizations. Uh, previously, Kane served as president and CEO of Gateway Health a managed care organization. Prior to that, he was president and CEO of Health Business for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota. And before that, he was president of national accounts for Aetna, which had 7 million members. Uh, and he's also held executive leadership positions at Nationwide and Principal Financial Group. He's got an MBA from Webster University and a bachelor's from Drake University. So welcome, Mr. Hayes. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let me add my words of welcome too. And I realized that you came to our state uh, almost at the start as the CEO, just about two years from now, I think in July, shortly after Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and the Tufts Health Plan had merged together with each other. Um, how's that going? And at some point, should we, the consumers expect that there would be a set of plan offerings under a single branded name? Well, thanks for the questions, uh, you know, Paul. I'll, I'll first say that the headline is that the uh, integration of the two organization, uh, organizations is going extremely well. Um, we have a multi-year, multi-phase integration plan that spans over five years. Uh, we're now in the third year uh, of that integration plan. And have uh, exceeded all of the milestones that we set um, for the uh, integration. Um, some of those milestones uh, include uh, bringing the two organ organizations together in one company headquarters. Uh, we completed that last year. In fact, we're coming up on just about one year exactly uh, that we uh, brought our colleagues uh, back to the office and uh, in Canton, uh, where our uh, new corporate uh, headquarters is. Um, also includes, uh, you know, certainly the migration of a number of our key components of our business on both the commercial as well as the government uh, programs uh, side. Uh, and then just recently uh, this year, uh, January 1st of this year, we consolidated our pharmacy benefit managers, our, our PBM, uh, with our partner um, OptumRx um, to continue to ensure that all of our members, you know, get access to the medications that they need in a in an efficient uh, manner. So proud of, uh, of of where we are on our integration journey. Uh, we continue to be focused on, of course, financial strength uh, as well as um, operating um, excellence, and um, we have a significant focus on health equity as well. And the two organizations really brought together uh, strengths and a legacy and a history of supporting our communities and, you know, with, again, a focus on uh, reducing barriers to uh, quality health care and, uh, and really making a, making a difference. 
Uh, with regard to our brands, uh, I can tell you, I, I, I'm honored and feel very fortunate to be the CEO of Point32 Health made up of two organizations that combined uh, between Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan have over 90 years of experience combined um, with great you know, brands, strong, iconic brands uh, here in New England in the five states in which we operate uh, in New England. Um, so um, we uh, have uh, uh, no intention on uh, consolidating those brands into one brand. We're gonna continue, you're gonna continue to see the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare brand in the market for our commercial products. And you will continue to see the Tufts Health Plan brand in the markets for our government products, including Medicare, uh, Medicaid, um, the ACA programs, uh, et cetera. And, um, and, and <clears throat> of course, the Point32 Health brand is still relatively new. Uh, we launched it in June of 2021, just six months uh, you know, as a new company. And so, again, you're going to see more and more about uh, Point32 Health and seeing that brand uh, in the market um, as well. Um, so that's the that's the that's where we are in the integration journey and our plans for our family of brands. So, Kane, that the the public value proposition for the merger was that Harvard Pilgrim and Tufts apart weren't a sufficient counterweight to Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, now that they are together, as far as they've gone, do we see any signs that it's really created the effective counterweight to Blue Cross? that people were expecting and hoping to see out of the merger or is that yet or are those signs yet to come do you think uh, no i i would tell you that uh, you know three years or two years in i should say we're in our third year uh, we're beginning to see the value creation uh, of the com uh, combination from a competitive standpoint uh, when you think about it from a scale perspective we now serve 2.2 million members the combined organization whereas uh, separately, each served about a million, you know, a million, uh, one each. And so that gives us, you know, sort of the scale uh, to compete uh, with not only our regional competitors, but uh, in many cases, our, our national competitors uh, as well uh, in, in, in this market. So a ways to go, but uh, the early signs are, uh, you know, the sort of the value of the combination uh, is really, uh, you know, bearing fruit uh, in that way from a competitive standpoint. Let me build on that a little bit about the differences between you and Blue Cross and something that I tend to hear from my primary care provider friends about, which a little bit is payment policy. And you know, COVID gave us a lot of challenges. Uh, you came to the plan during that era, but it also gave us on the positive side, a more robust use of telehealth services for a variety of uh, you know, out, out, outpatient encounters. And recently, um, you, you and all insurers had to make a decision about what kind of payment parity to do with respect to primary care and chronic disease issues. Blue Cross decided to pay its telehealth services for those kinds of services at 100% at equal to what they pay for in-person. Your company decided to pay 80%. Uh, what was behind that decision? Well, you know, the way we see it, Paul, it's a, it's a return to uh, kind of pre-pandemic policies. I and mean, we certainly, with the pandemic, and I think it, it was um, certainly extremely beneficial to our members and, you know, patients um, of the health systems uh, broadly, where, you know, at the height of the pandemic, and you've seen the numbers, um, you know, health systems went from two 
thousand uh, uh, virtual visits or televisits uh, to some cases, a couple million. <laughs> and now we've seen, you know, those levels, you know, coming down, generally speaking, um, but certainly continuing um, at very high levels for behavioral health. Uh, and so, you know, our uh, it, it, prior to the pandemic, we reimbursed um, the uh, televisits at 80 percent. Um, going forward, and we and we do believe that the Commonwealth struck the right balance um, with the uh, regulations in uh, early 2021 to continue in perpetuity behavioral health uh, visits, telehealth visits being reimbursed at parity, you know, in perpetuity, and there being sort of a two-year window um, for the non, you know, BH uh, uh, visits. Um, and so we're, we are returning to kind of, the, again, the pre-pandemic uh, policies. I, I can't speak for, you know, Blue Cross uh, Blue Shield of, of Massachusetts, but I know for us, you know, we believe that affordability of care continues to be a major issue. And if you look at the national standards, it indicates that um, telehealth visits should have a lower cost structure, which should then allow us to pass that on, you know, to our uh, customers in the form of, you know, premium payments. And so that's really the that's really the way we think about it. That window is, you know, that two year window is coming to an end, and um, we believe um, uh, it's the right thing to do to return to those, again, pre pandemic, uh, you know, payment policies. Okay, um, so switching gears just a little bit, um, one of the things I'm sure you've become very familiar with since you've arrived in Massachusetts is the Massachusetts Health Policy Commission, which is our cost control agency in Massachusetts state government. Uh, just at their hearing earlier this month, uh, the uh, president of the Mass Health and Hospitals Association, Steve Walsh, uh, called for an end to the cost growth benchmark which has been kind of the anchor of the law since it was approved and acted in 2012. Uh, he's uh, calling it as, uh, as no longer productive in terms of taming healthcare spending growth. Do you think he's right or he's wrong? Should the state continue with the benchmark um, and uh, has it uh, achieved its, uh, its needed public purpose, do you think? Well, we believe that the benchmark is still important uh, because it recognizes that joint commitment to lower overall cost. Uh, again, affordability is one of the top challenges uh, for our industry. You know, I talk frequently with our customers, uh, employer groups, uh, as well as members. And uh, when we talk about concerns, the cost and the affordability of healthcare is at the top of the list. Uh, and certainly that's a big driver for some of the disparities that we see uh, from a health equity and social determinants of health standpoint uh, as well. Uh, and so, you know, again, you know, we think that, uh, you know, working together, um, you know, with health systems to reduce the uh, underlying cost of care, you know, is, uh, is important and that the Health Policy Commission plays uh, an important um, role there. You know, Governor Healy, uh, talks a lot about, and I think rightfully so, wanting to make Massachusetts more competitive. And we believe that a big part of that um, is healthcare and the cost of healthcare. Um, one of the things I learned coming into this uh, market, uh, coming from Pennsylvania, I've had the good fortune of working 
in several different healthcare markets around the country, as noted uh, in my background in, in bio. And while you know the healthcare in this region is certainly world class, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, it's also ex extremely expensive, <laughs> and so we have to do all that we can to you know bring down um, th those costs. So that's um, that's kind of how we uh, think about it, and we don't think we should give up uh, on that on that uh, uh, aspiration to reduce. Uh, the cost of care. Would you like to see it strengthened at all? Would you like to make, would you, would you propose some changes to make it perhaps more effective than it's been? Well, you know, I think there's some opportunities there. I mean, we could, you know, one example, and I, I mentioned this when I testified uh, uh, before the, com the Health Policy Commission back in November, uh, you know, uh, we look at the cost of drugs and the pharmaceutical companies. I think there could be some benefit to pulling pharmaceutical companies into the purview of the uh, Health Policy Commission as, as, as one example. Uh, the other, you know, sort of mechanisms that are in, pl in, in place um, that the health, that the HPC uses, you know, we think are, you know, the, the right ones and the, and the right approach. And the HPC, you know, agrees that, that uh, some savings in the, in the pharmaceutical area makes a lot of sense, but in their last set of of year rec yearly recommendations they put out in October, they focused one in particular on the health plans in our state and said that plans like yours ought to really work harder to reduce administrative complexity in your offerings and make your overall premiums more affordable, such as like by passing on savings that you might get from a pharmacy benefit manager, let's say, onto on premium payers. Uh, can you do any of those things? And what, what is your focus there? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, you know, we're committed to working with uh, providers uh, to reduce administrative complexity um, and the administrative burden, the burden uh, is certainly a key objective of ours. But, you know, I think it's important to take a step back. And, and I think most people realize this, but for those that don't, uh, 90 cents of every dollar, premium dollar that we bring in goes back out for direct medical care. 90 cents of, on every dollar. Mm -hmm. So while administrative um, efficiencies and reducing you know, administrative complexity uh, is important and we wanna do everything we can to work with health systems on that, uh, we still need to get at the, the underlying cost, which is driving the 90, uh, the, the 90 cents. So we certainly don't wanna lose uh, sight of that, uh, of that fact, but we're supportive of um, you know, reducing the administrative um, complexities where we can. The one feature I, I noticed, uh, Senator Freeman has proposed a law that focuses in particular on the whole issue of prior authorization, not by any means abolishing it, but trying to tighten it up uh, and perhaps use it a little bit less frequently or once approval has been gotten, maybe let that stay in place for a while. She's been pushed by providers and others and consumers conceivably about that. But what's your thoughts about that particular proposed bill that she has? Well, we understand the proposed bill to be a starting point uh, and believe that it's important to work together to strike that balance to address, you know, again, reducing the administrative uh, complexity. You know, we are not uh, the, the challenges that our health systems are facing um, from an administrative standpoint um, don't fall on deaf ears with us. You know, we, we certainly want to do everything we can. At the same time, uh, it's important to um, utilize the tools that we have available, like prior authorization, to ensure, ensure that members or patients are getting the right care 
um, in, in the right setting uh, at the right time. Um, and so, to, uh, to your point, we believe that abolishing prior authorization altogether um, is not the right answer. Back to the issue of cost, um, because it's clear that um, um, while um, the vast majority of the prior authorizations that we receive um, are approved, it's not 100%. Uh, and there are situations where, you know, inappropriate care is being um, recommended that um, that we're able to avert with uh, with prior authorization. So, you know, we'll continue to look at it, continue to work, um, you know, with the um, with regulators and uh, legislators to ensure that you know we we stay on track there. So, so Kane, you've had a long and illustrious career in health insurance, and you've been on both sides of kind of the great divide between for-profit healthcare and nonprofit healthcare. And obviously your plan right now is one of the largest not-for-profit plans in Massachusetts and New England. Uh, given your experience and your perspective, does it make any difference these days whether or not a plan is for-profit or not-for-profit? Is there still a significant difference people should know? Um, how important is it that Massachusetts stay mostly nonprofit, both in the insurance side and on the pro provider side. And would Point32 ever consider going for profit while you're in charge of it? Well, I, let me first just say, uh, my, I have an interesting career trajectory. I, I spent the first two thirds of my career uh, actually not in healthcare. Uh, the first two thirds of my career uh, was in financial services. Um, and my uh, responsibilities within uh, the companies I worked for in that industry were helping organizations, um, both governmental entities as well as you know private you know corporate uh, organizations, um, set up retirement plans to build financial health for their employees. So think 401ks and, and defined benefit pensions. And I made the conscious decision to shift my career into healthcare. Um, in uh, 2010, the year the Affordable Care Act passed, because what I saw is that time and time again, uh, one of two things was happening. Either people did a great job saving for retirement and they got to retirement with strong financial health, only to have a poor quality of life because they didn't have, uh, they didn't have their physical and or behavioral or mental uh, health. Um, and so I, 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 I came up with this notion, which, you know, now we call it uh, whole person uh, health, but I, I called it total health to take what I learned in, in financial services and, um, and help solve for this whole person health or total health that really brings together physical health, mental or behavioral health, and then this, this notion of, of financial health. Um, I also saw, and it was a driver that at the under, other end of the spectrum, um, people, um, the average balance in a 401k um, at that time was about $40,000. And so people would get to retirement and then, you know, have um, one health event because of their, you know, chronic, of chronic conditions and wipe out their entire savings and oftentimes leading uh, to bankruptcy. So started my career, and as you, as you noted, uh, I started my career in healthcare, and as you noted, with a for-profit, very large for-profit you know, uh, national uh, publicly traded uh, organization. And then I, I made the conscious decision 
after a number of years there to transition to not-for-profit health plans. And so I do believe that not-for-profit health plans uh, make a difference by putting the community and the members first. Uh, we don't have shareholders. <laughs> um, we don't have an, an earnings per share that we need to hit every quarter. We can make investments in the short term and the long term to benefit you know, our members uh, and, the, and the community. And so we are a community-based health plan. Uh, we live and work in the community. We volunteer in the community. Last year, our organization uh, dedicated over 9,000 uh, hours, volunteer hours in the community. Um, I, I would challenge you to find any you know, for-profit organization um, you know, that uh, had those kind of uh, volunteer hours in Massachusetts. And, uh, and of course, the investments through our foundation and, and other corporate giving. So yeah, we, we, we think those things matter. And um, we think Massachusetts has been well served by uh, being one of the few markets that's still dominated by not-for-profit uh, health plans. Kane, let's let's move you to the broadest policy focus that we can at the state level, which let's say Governor Healy was part of our conversation with us today, uh, or you had your own private conversation with her, what would you be advising her to do and think about in terms of improving health and, and, and the health care in Massachusetts? Well, you know, I, I tell you, a lot of the conversation we've had so far has been about health care and the care that uh, people receive in the clinical setting. And I think we all know that research shows that, or many of us know, that the vast majority of our health outcomes come from non-clinical factors, you know, actually, uh, often referred to as social determinants of health or social influencers of health. So what I would advise uh, Governor Healy is, while that focus on the care that's happening for that 20% in the clinical setting uh, is important, um, it's more important, in my view, to focus on those non-clinical factors, public health issues like um, housing, you know, uh, affordable quality housing, which we know is a challenge um, in, in, in this region, Massachusetts specifically. Um, we also know that, um, you know, access to quality food is important. Transportation, um, reducing language barriers, those are all um, you know, those non-clinical factors would really drive health outcomes. And, and we're proud to say that Point 32 Health, through the combination of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan, is the only health plan in Massachusetts that serves every segment of the market, from moms and babies in MassHealth, which is the Medicaid program, all the way to seniors in Medicare Advantage, uh, to, you know, all of our uh, members that are in commercial plans, you know, with, with employers. So we know firsthand the impact that uh, these non-clinical factors have on um, at-risk or underserved uh, populations. Um, we're proud of the fact that we just received NCQA, which is the National Committee for Quality Assurance, uh, their first ever NCQA health equity accreditation. Uh, we're the first and only health plan at this point in New England uh, to receive that accreditation, along with you know our quality excellence on Medicare stars being um, five out of five rated CMS uh, Medicare Advantage plan eight eight years in a row. So I, I would I would I would focus on I would advise Governor Healy, uh, let's work together to focus on you know some of these um, these social determinants of health that really drive 
um, health equity. So it always happens. Our time flies by. We have time for one more question and I will give it to you. We have a, a new player in town and they were on our two representatives from them were on our recent podcast from the uh, health equity compact in Massachusetts, which is proposing comprehensive legislation to address social determinants of health, but also just the pervasive inequities, racial and, and, and ethnic and other kinds of, uh, of inequities. And you are part of that coalition. You are on the website as one of the leaders of that. Um, what's most important about that? And is there a part of the bill that you're particularly interested in and focused on in terms of hoping that that survives the process that you think would make a difference? Well, I, I'll tell you first, uh, we're extremely proud uh, to be members of the Health Equity Compact, made up of leaders from diverse backgrounds with lived experience um, with some of the systemic uh, barriers that exist to, uh, with regard to access to quality, affordable uh, health care, and really proud to be one of the you know, early organizations supporting uh, the Health Equity uh, Compact. Uh, health equity, and, I, and I, I mentioned this before, is a significant focus for Point32 Health. Uh, we have over 70 different initiatives internally that uh, uh, focuses on um, health equity. And we um, created what we call last March, almost a year ago, what we call the Point32 Health Corporate Health Equity uh, Program, which really looks to streamline those initiatives uh, to uh, drive broader impact and, and better outcomes. And so, you know, the, certainly the, the working with the Health Equity uh, Compact, again, you know, in this, uh, in the Commonwealth, we've addressed access to a large degree, uh, but now we have to, you know, really uh, address uh, quality in reducing uh, the barriers to health. Uh, it's going it's a, it, it's a team effort. It requires collaboration across public and private partnerships, and we're all in uh, to do everything we can uh, to support that. Thank you. So, uh, Mr. Kane Hayes, President and CEO of Point32 Health, thank you very much for joining us and participating in this conversation. It was enlightening and terrific to get your help to get your voice out there. We hope to hear a lot more from you as well. And my thanks to my uh, colleague, Paul Hattis, as always, for joining and participating. And thanks to all our listeners. And we will be back next month with another exciting guest to explore Massachusetts health policy frontiers. Thanks very much and uh, take care, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye now. <laughs>